By just sort of lame capitulation. Yeah, basically just gradually, gradually <laughs> becoming just lazy. Like, all right, here you go. This week on A Week in Wireless, what's the point of Snapchat? Is this the end of 5G friendliness? And would you dump your partner for your broadband provider? All this and more. Hello and welcome to another Week in Wireless podcast reviewing the comings and goings of the telecoms industry this week. I'm Scott Bacchino and I just have with me this week Jamie Davis. Hi, Jamie. Hi there, Jamie. Uh, hi there, Jay. Hi there, Scott. <laughs> uh, right, okay, you've gone schizo on me. Maybe you're compensating for the fact that we haven't got Tim here. Yeah, so, yeah, well, uh, I can do two different voices. <laughs> there we go. Um, right, cutting straight to the chase. Uh, a story I wrote today is about the IPO of Snapchat, which many people, especially if you're a teenage girl, will know as the instant messaging app where you sort of send messages and images and then they disappear after a while. And to some extent, that's it. Um, which led me to write a piece headlined, What's the Point of Snapchat? Because I've got to admit, I don't use it. I do use IM. Um, I chat to various friends of mine either using WhatsApp or there's a, a more secure platform called Signal. But that's very much just written and occasional exchange of photos. Um, the the unique appeal of WhatsApp doesn't... I don't quite get, but a lot of people do. I've certainly seen uh, people much younger than me in the office, send little selfies with superimposed rabbit ears or yeah. or funny distortions to their face and all that sort of thing. Or, a but, slight, or slightly racist makeup on. Yeah, yeah, there was that bit of contention, wasn't there? Bob was it Marley. Bob Marley, yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. You can't you can't just sort of be a regular person pretending to be Bob Marley without there being some <laughs> accusations <laughs> of dodginess thrown at you. Um, so that was that. So as as an end user, I'm not sure of the point of it. But w- what's more relevant, if it's going to do an IPO, which I think is in the region of something like twenty, valuing it at twenty to twenty five billion. Yeah, I think they're trying to raise three billion, aren't they? Yeah, but on a valuation, yeah, so that implies billion, it implies they're only sort of selling a, about sort of fifteen percent of it. Um, is you know what's the point of it commercially? So. You know, look at business models behind sort of social media slash sort of communications. We've got Facebook, which is proven. We know what that is. It's sort of platform for all kinds of not so sort of immediate communication. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about you, Jamie. I use it mainly either for sharing interesting bits of news that I've seen or for putting up sort of pictures of the family and that sort of thing. Yeah, but I mean, that's, I mean, that's the point. You use it for something, yeah. and I use it for something else. I yeah. I use it for sort of keeping in touch with what friends are doing all around yeah. the world. Or, you know, my parents don't have WhatsApp, so we use it as a, a sort of like we've got like a group, yeah. uh, sort of like Facebook thing that we're just constantly firing exactly. messages. Exactly, so, so, so it's got a good general social platform for, for all kinds of uses. Then there's Twitter, which I personally don't use very much. I've had a Twitter account from since almost day one. The two reasons I don't use it, firstly, is I just forget to. Yeah. It's one of those things, Facebook, I might post one or two things a day maximum. And that will be as and when it occurs to me. But it always struck me that Twitter is something you need to invest a lot more in and you need to be a lot more proactive with and trying to sort of start conversations. How about what do you think? I don't know. I mean, I've, I've only been on it. I haven't been on it for that long. Right. But, I mean, basically, I started my accounts from when I... Uh, when I started working for telecoms. So okay, so, and you, so you felt no compulsion whatsoever prior to that? No, no, no. I mean, I just didn't see the point in it the majority of the time. Right. But, you know, I can see the value in it now. And I, I use it 
pretty much, you know, once, maybe twice a day. Occasionally, I forget right. about it. I never use it on the weekends. But, you know, I got, I, I've managed to work up to about two and a half thousand followers now. So it's Played. not too bad. Um, but, I mean, I think that's the difference with, like, Snap. I don't know if I've sort of, like, cut you off there. Not at all. Any time, mate. Yeah. <laughs> but Facebook, I mean, fa- why is Facebook a, such a commercial success? Is because they've got their finger in absolutely every pie going. I mean, first of yeah. all, they mastered advertising Indeed. on social media. But they've mastered advertising because there's so many different aspects to it. Yeah. You know, you don't go on Facebook for one thing. You go on for messaging. Yeah. And you go into And let's not forget, sort of advertising in the current digital age is, is all about um, sort of tailored advertising. Yeah, yeah. So what Facebook, because you... You put stuff up that indicates what your preferences are, whether they're commercial or what bands you're into or whatever. It, it thinks, and actually, I'll question how effective it is. By yeah. the way, but it thinks it can then serve up very uh, but targeted. This, you ads. know, these targeted ads actually only come from the engagement that you get off the users, and the engagement only comes from the fact that there's so many different things you can do on Facebook. You know, yeah. uh, you know, you're you're entering in so much different information into the machine. You're feeding the ability for them to do to give targeted advertising. And plus, you know, I go on it occasionally to look at the marketplace now to see if there's anything to buy in the local area. I look at it to see what people are doing, whether there's any local events around or anything like yeah. that. So. The, 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 you're keeping the engagement up on so many cool. different levels. Yeah, no, but, I, com- I completely concede your point, and I think I think Twitter's a bit more narrow, isn't it? But that's but that's where I think the the big problem with Snapchat is going to be. They're, right. they're all chasing this Facebook model where they can do targeted advertising. Yeah. But because there's so many, there's such a limited uh, sort of engagement level on Snap or Twitter. You know, you don't. Yeah. I don't put that much information in because I'm only on it for half an hour, and maybe not even that much yep. every day. No, I, I see you there, and, and I don't have the answer to what the commercial model is. They're asking people to sort of invest a lot of money on a, on a maybe. You know, the, the valuation of 20 to 25 billion, their, their revenues last year were about 400 million, yeah. and they made a loss of about 500 million on that. So, uh, yeah, so it's a big leap of faith. I mean, there's some talk about uh, video being a very big thing for them, not just video advertising, but also maybe charging for little brief video clips, maybe yeah. mu- music videos, something like that. I'm still, you know, maybe some sort of you know equivalent of YouTube. I'm still not convinced by that either. I mean, I'm not convinced that, you know, if you're going to charge for videos, why would any user pay for it when you can go on YouTube and get it for well, free? It'll be, it'll be the, I guess it'll be the, the convenience and the shareability. It'll be all these sort of first world problems that get solved. Yeah. The instant yeah. gratification. Um, but, uh, yeah, okay, well, I, I, th- I think we agree on that, that, I mean, I, I wouldn't invest in it, but then I don't have any spare cash to invest at all. No, but, I mean, at the same time, I just can't see how it's no. going to be around that much longer, to be honest with you. I mean, if you look at the stories, like, we were talking about this earlier today. Right, with Instagram. Like, with, with, yeah, with Instagram. Basically, Facebook has just turned around and gone, do you know what? I'm going to screw can do that. you over. yeah. You know, we're gonna we're gonna take all your business because we're a social media giant, yeah. And we're gonna do the exact same thing on a more popular platform, which is which are, on a, sorry, on a more popular platform with millennials who are a much more attractive right. audience, if that makes sense. You know, yeah, the yeah. guys that are around the age of thirty, 
Um, and yeah, they're just, I think they're just going to screw Snapchat over the next couple of years. One, thing, one last thing I'll say before I sort of move it along about my sort of ability to call a good investment. I also didn't invest in Facebook, which if if you bought into it about a year after its IPO, because it initially didn't perform that well for no. about a year after its IPO. But if you bought into it in, in the, I think, middle of 2013, you would have uh, got five times your money now. <laughs> so I was looking at that little chart on Google Finance and going, there's another there's another opportunity missed. But there you go. I've, I've never invested in any stock, so I can't exactly moan about missing one because I haven't bought any. Okay, moving on. Um, Jamie, you wrote a piece. Uh, there was uh, AT&T in, in the US had, a, had an event where it was going on about its latest efforts in 5G. Um, and one angle you took on it was, given that I, I think it's sort of planning to start having 5G test beds this year, and the angle you took quite reasonably was, you know, what happened to all that talk of partnerships and everyone in it together and all that sort of thing? AT&T seems to be sort of freelancing away. Tell us a bit more. Well, I think it's that, I mean, the one thing I've heard in the industry more than anything else is uh, when it comes to 5G and 2020, it's crossing the finish line together. You know, everyone wants to get the technology and they all no one wants to rush into it so we can avoid the fragmentation problems that we had with 4G, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think this is... I'm, first of all, I'm curious at how effective this AT&T initiative is going to be. Yeah. Because I think they might be rushing into it slightly, uh-huh. mainly because you've got what Verizon and, K, uh, and KT over in Korea have been running away with yeah. sort of IoT over the last uh, last couple of years, IoT and 5G. And then all of a sudden, AT&T has turned around and said, oh, wait a minute, if they're going to break their friendliness right. promise, we need to do something as well. Which I suppose stands to reason. I mean, this is what happens with uh, Solidarity. Uh, as soon as you know to have a sort of tenuous link, you know, as soon as one person breaks ranks, like like the UK and Europe, uh, it it can cause cracks to appear elsewhere, and maybe that's it. You know, this five G stuff was only ever going to last until someone went. You know what? We're going to we're go going to get it. ahead of the game here. Um, I mean, maybe it's. I mean, I don't know how much the outcome is going. You know, how much this is going to affect the outcome, or whether AT and T are going to get caught up. But I mean. You were out. I wasn't reporting on this sort of thing when 4G was coming around. So, I mean, are we going to see the same problems? Yeah, I think, I mean, so I was, back then I was more handset focused. But one thing that was quite clear is that lots of people were talking about 4G stuff that frankly wasn't. Um, They were talking, you know, HSPA Plus was being called 4G. So it wasn't even LTE. And sticklers for these definitions say that only LTE Pro or Advanced or something like that should strictly be called 4G. So the definition of these things is is pretty vague. There'll be a strict sort of 3GPP one, but try telling the marketing people to shut up until those sort of thresholds are met. They're never going to do it. Uh, so that's what it really is. I mean, I think you you touched on it. There's probably a bit of one-upmanship if Verizon's yeah. already going for it. Be a bit of one-upmanship from there. We can expect our our mates at uh, T-Mobile US to sort of get involved, uh, either that or or maybe he'll just tell Donald Trump to tell him to stop it or something like that. Um, the, the other thing, I just wonder what, apart from the odd bit of marketing's point scoring, they get from it. Because we're not going to be using 5G as subscribers for a long time yet. Mm. Most people still reckon 2020 onwards. Uh, for most... Uh, consumers, it won't matter anyway, 
because we're going to be getting one gigabit per second plus over the air bandwidth from from various sort of 4.75G, 4.9G, et cetera, et cetera, 4.9 recurring G. Um, so it's not like we're going to suddenly switch to 5G and have a ton more bandwidth because that will be there anyway. Uh, so the, and we've discussed this on the podcast before. A lot, a lot of the benefits of 5G are going to be quite industrial, things like this low latency for sort of yeah, remote yeah. control and, and, and MBIOT, you know, for, for the, all that IoT-ness. So other than just the marketing people being able to stick 5G in yet another press release, uh, I'm not sure what the point of it is, unless you can tell me something I haven't realised. I don't know. I mean, maybe it is just... I can't, I can't really think of no. it. I mean, to be honest, I'm a, I'm a sceptic when it comes to actual sort of data usage. I personally don't... I mean, unless you're talking about 4K TV or 4K yeah. video or something like that, I mean, personally, while well, you need something that highly defined... I got no idea. Indeed, you know, certainly my, not on a five-inch screen. No, no. I mean, well, even my bloody TV back home, I got yeah. a thirty-six-inch TV, <laughs> and I'm, I'm perfectly happy with it. So it's, it's not that defined. So, I mean, oh, I don't. You want to see every last speck of dust? Yeah, I know. It's, but it's, it's. I mean, I think for a, certainly for certain cases, it's very much a, you know we're doing it because we can do it, and we're we're putting the idea in the head of the consumer. Therefore, the consumer demands it because they think they need it, even though we're just telling them that we're capable of doing it. I mean, I think it's it's just yeah. that sort of recurring... Yeah, and as we've said lots of times before, and I have had marketing people, for example, our good friend Mary Clark, sort of commend the view. Marketing people are always looking for something new to sell. Yeah, yeah. That's fair enough. That's allowed. Marketing people, or at least some, will admit that. Uh, but, God, they really... They just get so ahead of the game that by the time it actually means something... You're just going to get massive fatigue and cynicism attached to it, but I don't. I don't see how, on a day-to-day basis, they've got any choice. You know, it's an obvious hook for them, and they're going to go for it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Okay, on that note, we will go to a break, and if you can possibly wait for a few seconds, we're going to talk about regulation when we come back. <laughs> see you in a minute. And if listening to us once a week wasn't enough, don't forget about the websites where you can catch up on all the latest regulations, digital trends, and technology innovations. Uh, surely digital trends first, mate. Yeah, really? I mean, well, who listens to you anyway? What, 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 hundreds of people every week I'll have you know, mate, but surely digital trends first, regulation second. I'm 90% yeah. sure they chirp in for the, for the Welsh Dorset tones. Well, who cares? Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us, and here's your rich reward. Um, we've got a few, I know, sort of regulation. The thing about the telecoms industry is regulation comes up a lot because it's by definition a regulated industry. Yeah. It's very a very high barrier to entry. Yeah. Uh, a lot of uh, telecoms players are former state monopolies. You kind of had to regulate them, otherwise they'll just charge like crazy and rip us all off. Um, no offence. <laughs> no offence, core audience of telecoms.com. Um, so... Here are a couple that I come along this week. I'm going to I'm going to talk about one first, and then over to Jamie. Um, OpenReach, which is the the most recurring sort of regulation saga in the UK, uh, which for those people who uh, have a not heard of it and b are for some reason still listening to the podcast, is the part of BT where they uh, let out infrastructure to third parties, people like Sky, TalkTalk, Talk, etc. Uh, and all these people think that the, they don't get a great deal out of open reach, that it's basically conflicted and um, has an incentive to do a less good job for them than it does for BT itself. And what they want is 
OpenReach to be completely and utterly distinct from the rest of BT, 100% independent. And what there is lots of jostling about is how that can be achieved, Something how something just short of complete independence can be achieved. So a sort of fudge whereby they're satisfied that there's operational independence and they're not having Gavin Patterson whispering in their ear, uh, while on the same side, BT doesn't have to completely relinquish OpenReach. And so this, so Ofcom, the regulator, said to them, well, you can have a sort of independent board um, and independent this and a different name and you've got to be in a different office and you've got to ignore each other when you walk past each other and all that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and, and then BT went, all right, look, look, we found these independent people. Um, as, as I said in my piece, they're more independent than a hermit reading the independent on Independence Day. Um, and here we go. So what are you saying, Ofcom? You can't say fair and that. And Ofcom just said a brief statement going, nah, that's not good enough. Um, and, and that was that, really. Uh, funnily enough, I got, you know, I put in my piece, it's not obvious what they would have to do. And Ofcom got in touch with me again, well, check out this press release we sent last summer saying what they've got to do. And I said, OK, thanks for that. But for future reference, Ofcom, why not mention that in your statement instead of just going, no. Uh, then I wouldn't have to speculate that it's not clear what they've got to do. So, you know, there's a communications thing. I still think, I mean, something weird's going on. Either BT doesn't know what Ofcom wants, which seems unlikely, or they do know what Ofcom wants, but they keep trying to underbid it. They keep trying to go, yeah, I know you said this, but how about we nearly do that? Yeah. I mean, it strikes me that they're trying to get away with, I mean... The one thing that caught my attention more than anything else when uh, for the BT press release was that they said they have all these guys on the board, on the board, but they'll still report into yeah. BT CEO on material matters. Yeah. Now, you know, I know they're trying it's to nice say, vague, isn't it? yeah, I know they're trying to say, you know, only things that are critical to mm. the wider corporate BT group, not BT's consumer business. Right. But material can mean anything. Oh, quite. And and how. Actually, can you be independent? If you're, in terms of patronage, if you owe your job to that company and that company can sack you, then you're not independent, are you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure it's a bit more nuanced than that. And we've had one or two comments on the story that sort of trying to explain how complicated it all is. But it still comes down to the definition of independent for me. And it's got, for, it to, for, these, for this board to be independent, it has to be appointed by someone other than BT, I would have thought. But, you know, what do I know? Um, and more regulation, Jamie. The EU finally got its act together on um, getting rid of roaming charges. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, well, it's... I mean, it's not over yet by any stretch of the right. imagination. Good. Why would it be? <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. Um, but, you know, after initially identifying the problem back in 2006, I think it was... They've actually come out now, 11 years later, and put this roadmap to how they're going to get rid of roaming charges. I mean, essentially, they put data, they put data, price caps on a gigabyte per data, which right. gradually decreases over the next five yep. years. So ultimately, they have addressed it, but it's still ridiculously expensive. Right. Um, you know, it's a lot cheaper than it was. I mean, it's already down, though, isn't it? They've already capped yeah. it a bit. But it's still, I mean, yeah, you know, as of 15th of June 2017, uh, it'll be €7.70 per gigabyte. So it's still right. pretty expensive. And then even when you get, you know, to get to something that's reasonable, €2.5 Euros a yeah. gigabyte, got to wait till 2022. So you think, as a consumer, 
you're you're in favour of no roaming charges at all. Is that correct? Um, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think it's I think it's taking the piss in certain <laughs> in certain matters. I I can understand in certain circumstances where increased charges on data consumption are necessary. Yeah, somewhere like so. Take Magaluf, for instance. Um, you know. We don't go on holiday there, but there's a lot of people that do go on holiday there. Uh, um, so, but when do they actually go on holiday? They go on for a very short period of time. Right. And from what I gather, I've never actually been, there's a huge influx of people, generally mm-hmm. between probably the the 16 to 21-year-old yeah, yeah. uh, sort of bracket. All uploading footage of them out on the piss. And yeah, that sort of yeah. Thing. So at that point, I can see increased charges being necessary because that is pretty much a dormant network, right? For the majority and of the year, suddenly it's got to ramp up. Suddenly it's got to have this bandwidth that, that is just completely unfeasible to maintain for twelve right. months a year. So, if if they are required to meet this demand, Fair you enough. know it's going to cost them. But you know when I go to when I go to Paris, for instance, guys, I mean, are you telling me that that one or or a the t- that they don't plan for tourists 12 months around the yeah. year and their no, capacity isn't there. So you're, you're making the argument about ability to deliver. The commercial argument, of course, is if they can, then they will. And if you go to the States, you're going to have to pay top dollar for roaming or anywhere outside of Europe. And and this is ultimately the way I see it as a, a political decision that Europe wants us oh, wants to get closer market. together yeah, yeah. And, and thinks that this should be one of the ways. I mean, I, I can see it both ways. As a consumer, great. You know, I don't want to have to pay loads of money when I'm camping in France to check on the footy scores and upload my stuff to Facebook and all that sort of thing. As a as a sort of business, as an industry commentator, I can see how this is difficult for the operators because it was quite a good source of both revenue and margin because they were charging top dollar. Uh, but, you know, I guess one of the reasons they're dragging it out, and I completely sympathise with your point of view about how glacial the progress is with these yeah. big public sector ones, Guess one of the reasons they're dragging it out is they're saying they're giving industry a chance to get their head around it. But damn, man, they should have got their head around it by now, shouldn't they? I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just. I mean, every time I look at this, I'm, my only argument is that you're telling me that these, you know, these the networks in the massive cities aren't capable of taking on tourist demand. So why are they charging data roaming charge uh, prices all the way through the year? Um, yeah. You know, I mean. Magaluf is an example. I can yeah. see. I can see why. Um, but yeah, overall. Okay. And uh, and one more thing. While we're talk- talking about Europe and regulation and that sort of thing, um, there's a French telecoms regulator uh, who have come out and sort of had a go. You know, the, the, there's a trend among operators, certainly in the in developed markets, to invest more and more in content. Yeah, uh, because their basic services, voice and data, have become commoditized. It's hard for them to sort of ensure loyalty of subscribers when they're all offering basically the same utility, and they figure a way of adding value in terms of in order to both um, maintain loyalty and hopefully charge a bit more of a premium and get that get that ARPU up a bit is to have unique content. So like BT Sport, sort of rugby and some football and you know, sport, all that sort of thing. Um, French regulators gone. No, that's out of order. Because if you're if you're buying content, then you're not investing in a network. So uh, you shouldn't. You're spending too much on content. You got you got to pack it in. To me, this is sort of archetypally sort of European. Because I don't think it's the place of the regulator to tell them how to run their business. 
Um, if they if their business decision is that regulating that, that investing in content is a good strategic move, to have that rug pulled out from under them because the regulator wants them to spend more on building new towers or, or coverage or capacity or whatever. I don't think it's his business. Um, but you wrote the piece. What, what was your take on that? I mean, I can see it from both sides. I mean, from the from the operator side, I think that you know you've got this public sector guy who probably hasn't worked a day in the commercial side of things in his <laughs> life, who's turning around and telling them how to run a business and after some massive lunch. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pro- he's French as well, so he probably had a bottle of wine as exactly. well. Exactly. So, he's know, half cut, and he's just going, you know what? He's just throwing his throwing his baguette everywhere and hurling <laughs> garlic at uh, everyone. There we go. Let's let's get into full xenophobia. Why not? <laughs> but you know, you have probably got this guy who's never worked in the commercial yeah. industry in his life. I got no idea. You know, this um, the chairman of RCEP. Yeah, okay, you might have done. I don't care. Um, <laughs> but he's telling he's telling commercial organisations how to how to run their own business. So I can see it from that perspective. You know. BT, or in this case, it was talk- they're talking about the French market. The French telcos have a right to turn around and say, you know, steer clear. This yeah, is, exactly. You know, when you when you keep to when you keep to you know organising your red tape over in that corner, <laughs> exactly. and we'll carry on doing what we do. But from the other side, I can see it from the regulators' perspective. They're investing billions and billions and billions, and they're trying to win this battle against traditional content providers, and. If they were winning the battle, mm-hmm. I'd be happy to turn around and say, go on, carry on doing it. It's a yeah. great model. But if you look in the UK in particular, BT, I mean, BT is nowhere near what Sky does in terms of content delivery. No, I mean, Sky is still by far and away, yet they're spending huge amounts of money. Yeah. So, so I can and, see it from both and sides. And they've got a lot of debt and they've got all sorts of other troubles going yeah. on. Yeah, no, that's a fair point, uh, and and it may be a bad move, but it's it's their right to make a bad move. Oh yeah, it is. It is. Point. But I mean, I think the the French regulator was turning around and saying it's just getting ridiculous. The money is yeah, you know, silly now. It's going to get to a point where you're spending so much because you're in this battle of one-upsmanship. Yeah, yeah, you you still need to invest in the network. You know, don't forget about the bloody network. Guys. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, why don't we just hand the whole country over to a, a, some of the more expensive football players? Yeah. It's essentially yeah. what's going on in terms of the transfer of cash. Just give Europe to Messi and Ronaldo. <laughs> um, okay, uh, so we're towards the end here. We've got a couple of other little ones that we spotted over the course of the week that are a bit, on, a bit more on the quirky side. There was one I spotted. Um, there's a... Uh, this is AI, so we, we talk about artificial intelligence a fair bit. Normally, I end up banging on about Terminator and that sort of thing. This one's slightly less apocalyptic. Um, but this was a, a sort of AI machine. I think we've called Libratus. Now, we've had a few of these where they use AI to take on humans at things like... Initially, it was chess, um, but that was sort of proven a while ago. And chess is quite a linear, logical sort of thing. Yeah, so then is... they had this one that taking on this, this, this uh, Far Eastern game called Go... Yeah. which is a bit more intuitive, a bit less linear, and they managed to kick this Go master's ass. And now they've moved on to poker, which which obviously relies on quite a lot of intuition and there's bluffing and, and there's lots of sort of random variables. And this uh, AI uh, machine called Libratus has just rinsed some of the best poker players in the world. Um, and so we keep these little proof points about how much cleverer AI is getting. Uh, and I think that's interesting by itself, um, although what it means for sort of people like these online poker 
um, guys, maybe if you could, you know, if you could rent out a bit of Libratus and just get it to auto play <laughs> well, <it laughs> and depe- win some it, money for you. It depends what, I mean, does it say which facets of AI it's been using? Because I think if it's just purely using predictive analytics, that's less interesting as far as I'm concerned. Because ultimately, poker, although it's a, a game of chance and bluff and all that sort of thing, ultimately, if you play, if you, like most games, if you play the odds, you're probably going to do pretty well. Mm. Um, but if they're using sort of like facial recognition software and that sort of thing to sort of pick up when guys uh, when guys are bluffing, if there's any tr- uh, sort of like twitches or anything like that, then it becomes that's something that's really really interesting. Okay, well, just having a little look at the article I got up here, it says Libratus for one did not use neural networks, which apparently is you know one yeah. of the things you use. Mainly it relied on a form of AI known as reinforcement learning, a method of extreme trial and error. In essence, it played game after game against itself. Um, so this is where you get into that yeah. teaching yourself, and then it, then it does get a bit Terminator, and then it's self-aware and it blew up the world, etc. Um, because when they when these machines start being able to teach themselves and start becoming more and more autonomous, it gets a bit more spooky. But you know, we, we've been over that a fair bit. Um, I think actually on on a on a tangent, I think Jamie, you've been sort of uh, polling the marketplace a little bit about AI this week, just. Just seeing what people reckon to the more Scott knee-jerk, the machines are coming to get us stuff. What kind of responses have you been getting? Well, I mean, the question itself I, I went out to the industry was, what's the biggest myth in um, in artificial intelligence? And, you know, some of them came back with this idea of, you know, AI is going to take over the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, I mean, that, that was actually only about 20 or 30 percent. The vast majority of people came back and said... AI is going to take is designed to take all of all of our jobs, and it's like, well, yeah, okay, it's designed to take some jobs, but it's designed to make yeah, hopefully not journalism jobs. No, it's just, it's designed to make the majority of us much more effective and as long efficient. As journalists, all right, I'm yeah. not bothered. I don't give a shit. Otherwise. <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of people have been coming back and saying, yeah, it's you know there is the there is the potential, there is the fear factor, and I do see it. Um, but there was one very I read the, the quote out to you earlier. And there was a, a chap from, I can't remember the name of the company, but I'm going to actually include this in the article. Right. Um, but it's a company that's been spun out of the University of Oxford, or Oxford University, whichever way around it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and this chap wrote, he said, yes, there is a risk of AI taking over the world, but it's not, it's not going to be the, the case of AI taking the world from us. It's going to be a case of... We're going to hand more and more control right. over to machines like TomToms and all that mm. sort of thing. Cough, Skynet, cough. Yeah. They, they, who would have thought 20 years ago that we'd yeah. be handing over, directing us to a machine? Indeed. We're just going to gradually, gradually, and gradually give more of our life to machines. So it's not going to be take. Yeah. If AI takes over the world, it's not going to be by force. It's by yeah. us giving it to them. It's by just sort of lame capitulation yeah, on basically our part. Just gradually, gradually becoming <laughs> just lazier. Like, All right, here you go. Yeah. I'll just I'm just gonna sit on this sofa until I sort of melt. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And that leads us to our final little quirky, which is sort of semi related. Uh, certainly when it comes to this willful capitulation to the ascendancy of machines. Uh, cable.co.uk interviewed two thousand UK broadband customers about their relationship. And broadband provider history. So they're trying to get the Venn diagrams of romantic relationships and broadband and find an overlap. (laughs) 
which is not not immediately obvious. Anyway, apparently 77% of those interviewed are more likely to remain loyal to their broadband provider to than to their partner. <laughs> I don't know what don't know what this says about all sorts of stuff. Um, I don't don't know if you actually get domestics where you know someone goes, well, it's it's me or Sky, and then the other person goes, there's the door. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. But, yeah, I'm uh, not giving up on the Game of Thrones. Yeah, exactly. So uh kind of backs up what you were saying about our sort of willing uh, capitulation, our, our willingness to relinquish power to, to the machines, I think, Jamie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're not taken. They're just, yeah. know, we're, we're just giving it to them. Yeah, well, on that note, I'm just going to sort of complete my obsolescence and just go and sit at home. At least I can watch the rugby without getting a machine's permission. <laughs> so uh thanks for listening, everyone. And uh join us next week. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on another episode of A Week in Wireless. Join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag AWIW. We'll be back next week, same time, same place, same people, but even better. 